Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Previously on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Suppose that you go to sleep one night and you have a dream of someone that you don't know who dies in a horrible way. This dream seems different than normal ones, and you come to think that the soul of the person who died is calling out to you for help. What would you do? That's the situation that confronted Dominican friar Father Nathan Castle. He began receiving dreams of just such souls. So what did Father Castle do? Did he find a way to help them? And what should we make of his experiences? So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week, we're going into analysis mode, and we're going to look at Father Castle's ministry to souls from the faith and reason perspectives. What should we make of it based on reason, and what should we make of it from the perspective of Catholic faith? So you won't want to miss that. You're listening to episode 270 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about communicating with the dead. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. So last episode, we discussed Dominican priest Father Nathan Castle and his unique ministry helping stuck souls move on in their journey toward God. This time, we're going into analysis mode and looking at the broader question of speaking with departed human souls. Is what Father Castle doing permitted by church teaching? Can we speak with the departed? And if so, what cautions are there? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Jimmy, what should listeners know going into this week's mystery? Last week, we talked with Father Nathan Castle of the Dominican Order about his books, Afterlife Interrupted, Volumes 1 and 2. In the books, he describes a distinctive spiritual ministry he performs. He reports regularly receiving, under God's providence, dreams about how people died, often in traumatic manners. And he interprets these dreams as being sent to him by souls, some of whom have become stuck in the afterlife rather than quickly moving on towards heaven. In Catholic terms, these souls would be understood as experiencing part of the process of purgatory, or the purification that occurs after death. According to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, purgatory purifies us from unhealthy attachments to created things. So these souls would be stuck by an unhealthy attachment to something, including, for example, resenting things about their lives and how they died. After receiving a dream, Father Castle then gathers with a member of a prayer team he has. They seek contact with the stuck soul, and they provide counseling and prayer to help the stuck soul loosen whatever unhealthy attachment is holding it back so that it can continue to make progress and move towards God. Okay, so what do you make of Father Castle's ministry from the reason perspective? What about the issue of verification, like looking up the people he reports ministering to and seeing if they really existed and died in the ways that are depicted in his dreams. How do we know that anything paranormal or supernatural is objectively happening here, rather than Father Castle just having an active dream life? Speaking from the reason perspective, it would be very good to look at these cases and establish whether the people really existed, and that's something that I personally would be very interested in doing. I'm a paranormal investigator, and so one of the things I always want to do is 
see if a particular means of communication, like dreams in this case, is producing veridical information or information that can be verified as accurate in a way that goes beyond chance. However, Father Castle does not feel that it has been his calling to do such verification efforts, at least not yet. He feels that his present charism is doing the work and helping the stuck souls, not proving that the souls he's helping are real. So he hasn't done verification work on these cases, though if he's interested in having someone else do it, I'd be happy to see what can be determined. What Father Castle has done, as he told us last episode, is establish a paper trail so that one day the cases can be investigated. He writes down the dreams, he records the sessions on his phone, and he has transcripts of the recordings made, so he's intentionally building a data set that can be studied. Until that work is done, do we have any preliminary sense of whether he may be getting veridical information? We do have some indicators. Uh, I hadn't been planning on asking him about it since it's not directly connected with his work with souls, but last episode, Father Castle mentioned a time he believed he got a message from God the Father for his best friend, who he knew as Matt. But in the message he got, God referred to Matt as Milton. And it turned out that Milton was his friend's real original name that he hadn't used since he was a boy. So that was one piece of veridical information that came through one of Father Castle's messages. Still, that's only one data point, and it's not directly connected with his ministry to souls. So last week, I asked him if any other bits of vertical information had cropped up in his work with souls, things that he hadn't previously known, but that later turned out to be true. And he indicated there had been such things. He cited an example of someone he knew having died without him knowing it. And then this person appeared to him in a dream for ministry, and it turned out later that the person had indeed died. In the episode, I mentioned that this experience is similar to what parapsychologists sometimes call a peak indarian experience. That's peak spelled P-E-A-K, like a mountaintop. There's uh, a line from a famous poem by 19th century poet John Keats that refers to a peak or mountaintop in the province of Darien, Panama. And parapsychologists have applied this line to a particular kind of experience. A peak in Darien is a kind of near-death experience, such as when a person dies, sees someone in the afterlife who they didn't know was dead, and then when they come back, they learn that their friend really had died. Or else, as a person is dying, they have a deathbed vision of people welcoming them into the afterlife, and one of the people they see is someone that they didn't know, that they didn't already know to be dead. This is like what happened to Father Castle, only he learned about his friend's death through his ministry to souls, rather than through a near-death experience where he went into the afterlife or a deathbed vision he had, he learned about his friend's death through a dream that put him in contact with him. So that's another data point of veridical information. And Father Castle indicated that there were other promising experiences that could serve as a starting point for future investigation. Suppose that a future study is done and that it confirms that the people Father Castle ministered to were real individuals and they did die in the ways his dream said. Are there any cautions we'd still need to be aware of? I think there are two. Uh, first, the human mind in its present state is likely not configured for processing things in the next world. So 
What Father Castle is likely getting is a simplified account that's been accommodated for the perspective of the living. We see the same thing in the biblical prophets, where they use symbols to communicate what things in heaven and the afterlife are like, like speaking of heaven as a wedding feast and having streets of transparent gold. And I think that the same thing is likely happening with the material Father Castle receives. So I think we should understand the material as symbolic of something more complex and not take the imagery literally. Like last episode, we heard the story of Buddy the Conductor, whose path to in the afterlife was blocked by a boulder. You and I and Father Castle all know that they don't really have boulders in the afterlife, so the boulder was a symbol of whatever spiritual reality was blocking Buddy from making further progress. The second caution is that we shouldn't expect flawless perfection. As I noted last episode, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith's 1978 document on evaluating private revelations noted that when a person receives visions, the seer's own consciousness may add elements to the messages they get, so it won't be 100% perfect. And we see the same thing in parapsychology, where psychic functioning is reported, reported to perform better than chance, but along with the psychic signal comes a good bit of noise. So you can't treat psychic perceptions as 100% accurate either. And I think the same thing would be expected here. Even if there is a future study that broadly validates Father Castle's messages so that they convey accurate information beyond what random chance would allow, there would still likely be a mixture of noise with the signal. So we shouldn't expect the results to be 100% accurate or treat them as 100% accurate. And Father Castle agreed with that when I asked him about it last episode. He thought there probably was a mixture of genuine supernatural information with some elements mixed in from his own consciousness. Now, let's look at Father Castle's ministry from the faith perspective. And I want to start by asking about something that certain listeners may wonder about. Some Catholics have heard that we shouldn't give names to our guardian angels. Father Castle reports that the guardian angels of the souls he works with were giving themselves temporary names, sometimes humorous ones. So before we get to his work with souls, what do you make of the angel names from the faith perspective? The idea that we are prohibited from naming angels is not a matter of church teaching or of church law. This is a misunderstanding based on something that did happen. There was an Austrian woman in the 20th century named Gabriella Bitterlich. Uh, she was associated with a movement called Opus Angelorum, or work of the angels in Latin, and she claimed to receive private revelations. These revelations included a rather extensive angelology, or theology of angels, that purportedly revealed information about the angelic world, their groupings, their functions, and even some of their names. And as part of a, of a review of Opus Angelorum, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith prohibited the use of Mrs. Bitterlich's private revelations that included the names of the angels she claimed to have received. But this didn't amount to a prohibition on naming angels. It was the rejection of a particular set of private revelations that included some angel names. Other than that, the only thing I've found in church documents is a 2001 directory on popular piety in the liturgy from the Congregation for Divine Worship. This document discouraged giving names to holy angels other than those mentioned in Scripture. But this was an advisory document, not a doctrinal one. The document seems to be discouraging voluntarily 
giving names to angels as opposed to hearing from them what they want to use. It also appeared to envision giving them names on a permanent basis rather than temporary nicknames. And most fundamentally, a discouragement is not a prohibition. Personally, if you want to have a nickname for your guardian angel, I don't see the harm in it. Just recognize that it's something you're calling the angel, not its real, unique, permanent name. In fact, I don't know that angels even literally have names, that is, linguistic tokens that stand for them in speech. Angels don't have bodies, so they communicate telepathically, and you may not need names if you're doing full-blown telepathy. As far as I'm aware, the angel names we have, like Gabriel, Michael, and Raphael, may just be meant for human convenience, and I don't see any reasons why angels that Father Castle works with couldn't give him temporary nicknames, which is all Father Castle says they are, to help him and his prayer partners on a temporary basis. That's not contrary to church teaching. What about the humorous nature of some of the nicknames? One angel based his name on the advertising character Jake from State Farm and said to call him Jake, but not from State Farm. Well, this has to do with the question of whether or not angels have senses of humor, and that's also not a matter of church teaching, so it would be a matter of speculation and opinion, and you could have different views on this. But even if you think that angels have no sense of humor, a view that would be debatable, it wouldn't determine the fundamental accuracy or inaccuracy of Father Castle's messages. There's no way to verify what an angel does or doesn't want to be called. So you could say that the angel names come from Father Castle's subconscious or those of his prayer partners. What is verifiable is whether the souls he's helping were those of real people who really died in the ways indicated. And a future study, if a future study reveals that this is the case, then the fundamental integrity of the material would be supported even if you thought the angel names were added elements from his subconscious. Then let's talk about Father Castle's overall procedure. Speaking from the faith perspective, what do you make of it? It's distinctive, and for some, that would be a source of concern. If there was a long history, you know, of people documentedly doing the same thing in the Catholic Church down through the centuries, then it would be an established practice and well accepted. But the fact it's as distinctive as it is could be a source of concern. Then there are the biblical condemnations of necromancy and the church's warnings against mediums and spiritism to consider, as well as the possibility of being tricked by demons. So we'll need to give serious thought to each of these concerns. Let's start with the distinctiveness of Father Castle's ministry. Does the fact that other people have not reported similar ministries give you any reason for concern? I certainly feel more confidence if this were an established part of the Catholic tradition, but elements of what he does have precedence in existing practices and experiences. There are many reports in history of people helping souls in purgatory in different ways, and so it's quite possible that God might pick certain people to help souls on a regular basis, giving them a type of charism or gift in this area. This is not one of the charismatic gifts listed in the New Testament, but in 2016, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith in Rome issued a document called Juvenescit Ecclesia, which dealt with charismatic gifts, and it commented on the diversity of such gifts, saying, 
In some texts, we find a list of charisms, sometimes summarized, other times more detailed. Among those listed there are exceptional gifts of healing, of mighty deeds, of variety of tongues, and ordinary gifts of teaching, of service, of beneficence, ministries for the guidance of the community, and gifts given through the imposition of the hands. None of these lists claims to be exhaustive. Elsewhere, for example, Paul suggests that the choice of celibacy for the love of Christ should be understood as the fruit of a charism, as should that of matrimony. The examples he gives depend on the level of development reached in the churches of the time and are susceptible, therefore, to further additions. The church, in fact, always grows over time thanks to the vivifying action of the Spirit. So the point the congregation is making is that none of the lists of charismatic gifts in the New Testament is exhaustive, and the Holy Spirit can even give new gifts over time, ones that didn't originally appear. So I have no basis for saying that Father Castle doesn't have a genuine charism of helping stuck souls, not based on the fact that this isn't a widely reported gift anyway. What about the objection that there are biblical passages that forbid necromancy? What do you make of this concern? This is something that comes up regularly in my work as an apologist. I regularly take calls on Catholic Answers Live where people will ask if the Old Testament prohibitions on necromancy would forbid asking the saints for their intercession. And I have answers to that. But the issue is more complex than many people realize. And so I wanted to take a step back and take a look at the nuances of the issue. That's one of the reasons I wanted to interview Father Castle as a way of taking a look at the broader issue of communicating with the dead. So this episode will essentially be one long look at the subject from the faith perspective. When it comes to the biblical condemnations of necromancy, the text in the Old Testament that has been most influential on this subject is found in Deuteronomy 18, and it reads, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those Canaanite nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who passes his son or his daughter through the fire. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or makes potions from herbs or a spellbinder or one who consults a non-human spirit that has knowledge or who inquires of the human dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations, which you are about to dispossess, Listen to fortune-tellers and to those who practice divination. But as for you, the lawyer God has not allowed you to do this. This translation is by the evangelical scholar Michael Heiser, who passed on earlier this year and had a special interest and knowledge of this area. And it brings out some of the nuances better than standard translations. A lot of English translations aren't done by specialists in this area and they try to use familiar English terms when translating this passage instead of using literal translations that better reflect precisely what the Hebrew says. I won't go into the details of why Michael Heiser's translation is better, but one of the things he does well is to distinguish between the different kinds of spirits that the Canaanites who inhabited the Promised Land before the Israelites used to encounter. There were two types of these spirits. One is those that Mike translates as non-human spirits 
that has knowledge or that have knowledge. And the other is those that Mike translates as spirits of the human dead. These are reasonable approximations of what the Hebrew says. The bottom line is that the Israelites were not to make inquiries of such spirits. Instead, God had another plan for them. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So the Israelites were not to inquire of human or non-human spirits for their supernatural information or to perform other Canaanite practices. Instead, they were to listen to the prophets that the Lord would send them. This makes it clear that what is under discussion is obtaining information from supernatural sources. That's not what's happening if you ask saints for their intercession. You're not getting information from the saint. Instead, you're giving information to the saint. You're letting the saint know about your prayer request to God and asking them to be your prayer partner. So this is just not the same practice that is being rejected in Deuteronomy. Instead, the practice that's being rejected in Deuteronomy has classically been called necromancy. This term has Greek roots. Nekros means a dead person or a dead body, and menteia means a prophecy or an oracle. So what you're doing in necromancy is trying to get a prophecy or oracle from a dead person instead of trying to get it from God. That's what the Canaanites had been doing, and that's what God didn't want the Israelites doing. He wanted them to consult him for their prophetic information. If that's the answer you give when people inquire about asking the saints for their intercession, how does Father Castle respond to the concern that his own ministry to souls might involve necromancy? I asked him about that last episode, and you can listen to that for his response, but he also addresses the subject directly in the first volume of Afterlife Interrupted, saying, This is not a book on how to contact the dead. It's not to be understood as an encouragement to seek out conversations with the dead. Are you familiar with the word necromancy? It is the practice of calling forth someone from the dead to declare future events or to reveal hidden facts for the benefit of the one doing the calling forth. That is not at all what I do. You will not find that here. Father Castle's definition of necromancy is a good one. The oracle or prophecy that one gets from the dead person can involve declaring future events or revealing hidden facts, but whatever it reveals, it's meant for the benefit of the living, to give them some kind of practical advantage, like knowing what will happen in the future or where a lost object is. And that's not at all what Father Castle is doing in his ministry to to stuck souls. He's not pumping them for information that will practically benefit from the living. He's giving them information in the form of counseling to help them, just like we give them information when we let them know about a prayer request we have. So I think he's right in saying that what he is doing is not necromancy, and thus it's not the practice that Deuteronomy is rejecting. Father Castle is a member of the Dominican order, and members of religious orders often have to get the permission of their superiors in order to publish books on religious subjects. 
Does Father Castle indicate whether he has his superior's permission? He indicates in Volume 1 of Afterlife Interrupted that he wrote a letter to his provincial superior as he was writing the book. He's a member of the Western Dominican province, and in 2018, when Volume 1 came out, his provincial was Father Mark Padres, who contributed a supportive statement to the work. Father Padres wrote, Father Nathan has written from his deep experience of prayer, faithfulness to the church, and dedication to his ministry as a priest. He has the profound desire to bring reconciliation and healing to those most in need. Very Reverend Father Mark Padres, O.P., Prior Provincial, Province of the Most Holy Name of Jesus, Oakland, California. When Volume 2 of Afterlife Interrupted came out in 2020, there was a new superior, Father Christopher Fadok, and he also contributed a supportive statement, writing, Pope Francis refers to the church as a field hospital to express his vision for the care of the wounded among us. He says, The thing the church needs most today is the ability to heal wounds and to warm the hearts of the faithful. It needs nearness, proximity. I see the church as a field hospital after a battle. I know a few priests as dedicated as Father Nathan to serving as a medic at the battlefront. His faith in God, who is love, and in God's promise of eternal life, leads Nathan undaunted to bring healing to those whose wounds menace them and their journey home. Very Reverend Christopher Faddock, O.P., Prior Provincial, Province of the Holy Name of Jesus, Oakland, California. So Father Castle's superiors in the Dominican Order know what he's doing, and he's operating with their approval as they've contributed positive statements to his books. They don't directly comment on whether he's really in touch with departed souls, though, or whether what he's doing is clearly permitted by Catholic teaching. Why do you think that is? Well, without investigating the cases and seeing whether they contain verifiable information, I don't think one could say with full confidence that he is in touch with departed souls. He may be, but he also might not be. We need evidence to settle that question. When it comes to their not directly commenting on whether what he's doing is in accord with Catholic teaching, last week Father Castle indicated that they did check with a Dominican theologian, and he said that he didn't see anything contrary to the faith. However, they also might be being careful because of some potential ambiguity in this area. First, even though what Father Castle is doing is clearly not necromancy, he's not trying to get oracles or prophecies from the dead, he does use some techniques that are similar to those used by mediums. Specifically, he speaks of him and his prayer partners lending their voices to stuck souls when they're ministering to them. For example, Father Castle or his prayer partner may allow a stuck soul to speak through them. And then the other person, you know, either Father Castle or his prayer partner, will provide a kind of counseling to help the stuck soul. This lending your voice to someone is at least superficially similar to what certain mediums do. While some mediums merely repeat what they hear a departed spirit saying, other mediums let the spirit speak through them. And so some could argue that this generates ambiguity about whether what Father Castle is doing is an acceptable practice. The second reason for ambiguity is that there just is more ambiguity in church teaching than people often suspect concerning contact with departed human spirits. Now, before we go further on this very interesting topic, I want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Kim L., Laura M., Matthew B., Sailing L., and Kelly M.
Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Rosary Army, featuring award-winning Catholic podcasts, rosary resources, videos, and the School of Mary online community, prayer, and learning platform. Learn how to make them, pray them, and give them away while growing in your faith at rosaryarmy.com and schoolofmary.com. And by Tim Shevlin's personal fitness training for Catholics, providing spiritual and physical wellness programs and daily accounts check-ins. Strengthen yourself to help further God's kingdom. Work out for the right reason with the right mindset. Learn more by visiting fitcatholics.com. Jimmy, why do you say that there's more ambiguity on church teaching concerning contact with departed human spirits than people suspect? Deuteronomy is quite firm in its rejection of the practice. Well, Deuteronomy is quite firm in rejecting necromancy, but as we'll see, there isn't an absolute prohibition on speaking with the dead. Otherwise, we couldn't ask the saints to be our prayer partners. So, what are the limits on this? What can you do and what can't you do? That's not something that Deuteronomy tells us, but later passages in Scripture shed some light on it. For example, in 2 Maccabees 15, we read, Encouraging his men from the law and the prophets, and reminding them also of the struggles they had won, Judah Maccabee made them the more eager. And when he had aroused their courage, he gave his orders, at the same time pointing out the perfidy of the Gentiles and their violation of oaths. He armed each of them, not so much with confidence in shields and spears, as with the inspiration of brave words. And he cheered them all by relating a dream, a sort of vision, which was worthy of belief. What he saw was this. Onias, who had been high priest, a noble and good man of modest bearing and gentle manner, one who spoke fittingly and had been trained from childhood in all that belongs to excellence, was praying with outstretched hands for the whole body of the Jews. Then likewise a man appeared, distinguished by his gray hair and dignity, and of marvelous majesty and authority. And Onias spoke, saying, This is a man who loves the brethren and prays much for the people and the holy city, Jeremiah, the prophet of God. Jeremiah stretched out his right hand and gave to Judas a golden sword, and as he gave it he addressed him thus, Take this holy sword, a gift from God, with which you will strike down your adversaries. So here God allows Judah Maccabee to have a vision and a dream, and in it he has a conversation with the soul of the deceased high priest Onias and the soul of the deceased prophet Jeremiah. Furthermore, Jeremiah gives Judah a prediction, indicating that he will strike down his enemies in the future. We thus have, under God's providence, departed souls giving Judah an oracle. You know, he's telling him about the future. Now, Judah didn't contact Onias and Jeremiah to get the oracle, but they gave him one anyway. And since we're told by the inspired author that this dream was worthy of belief, the whole thing seems morally acceptable. So, on the one hand, Deuteronomy says don't inquire of the dead to get oracles, but if the dead show up and give you oracles without your asking, that can be okay. That indicates that we're dealing with a pretty fine line here, and sensitivity to the delicacy of the situation is something that seems to be reflected in current church teaching. 
I was quite surprised a few years ago when I started researching this area and looked up what the Catechism of the Catholic Church has to say about contact with departed spirits. I knew that God can allow saints to manifest to the living in apparitions like Onias and Jeremiah did for Judah Maccabee, and Catholic theological tradition has recognized that other spirits, such as souls in purgatory, can also make contact. But when it comes to contacting the dead, you know, taking the initiative to reach them, the Catechism was very restrained in what it said. The relevant passage reads, All forms of divination are to be rejected. Recourse to Satan or demons, conjuring up the dead or other practices falsely supposed to unveil the future. Spiritism often implies divination or magical practices. The Church, for her part, warns the faithful against it. Here, the Catechism defines divination as practices that are falsely supposed to unveil the future, including contact with demons and conjuring up the dead to get information about the future. So, divination is out. But when it comes to the practice of contacting the dead itself, or what is called spiritism, the Catechism is much more restrained. It says that it often implies divination or magical practices, and that the Church, for her part, warns the faithful against it. That's a very mild statement. It does not clearly say that spiritism is always wrong. It just says that it can involve two things that are wrong, divination and magic, and that the Church warns people against it, but that's not the same thing as saying that contacting the dead itself is wrong. What if you contact them but you don't do divination or magic? Given what we've seen, it can be okay to speak with a departed soul, as in the case of an apparition, like Onias and Jeremiah, or asking a saint for their intercession, so merely speaking with the departed wouldn't seem to be wrong. So, would it be wrong to contact them and speak with them, but not do divination or magic? The Catechism's being very careful here. And to verify that, I not only checked the Latin of this passage, I also checked the French original, since the Catechism was originally drafted in French. I contacted mysterious irregular David Hockley, who lives in France, and asked him a series of questions about the nuances of the French without telling him the context of what I was asking about so that I'd get his unbiased opinion about the language without bringing the subject of spiritism into it. One of the questions I asked him was about the force of the French verb garder, which is used here. Is this a particularly strong term? I mean, for example, under no circumstances, whatever, are you to have anything at all to do with this? Or is it a relatively weak term? For example, you know, be careful or be on your guard? Or is it somewhere in the middle? He wrote back and said, As for the strength of the verb, garde, it will be somewhere between the weakest and the middle option depending on the wider context. And we have adverti, just before garde, which has the strength of a warning rather than an order. So the modification in this passage of garde by adverti would indicate that this is a warning rather than an order or strict prohibition. As our discussion progressed, the context of Spiritism and what the Catechism says about it came out, and he gave me the following assessment based on the French being used. Basically, it feels like the text is saying, 
since spiritism sometimes includes divinatory and magical practices, you'd best stay away from it. In other terms, divination and magical practices should be avoided at all costs, so to be safe, stay away from spiritism because it sometimes includes them. And that agrees with my reading of the English translation as well as what the Latin says. So it doesn't look to me like the Catechism is making an absolute prohibition here. It's issuing a more nuanced warning on the fact that Spiritism can involve divination and magic. To fully appreciate this fact, you also need to consider the context of this statement and how the overall passage in the Catechism is structured. The Catechism treats Spiritism in a section titled Divination and Magic, which runs from paragraph 2115 to paragraph 2117. So those are the two subjects that the Catechism is warning us about, divination and magic. In paragraph 2115, it says that God can reveal the future to prophets and saints, but that we shouldn't have an unhealthy curiosity about this and should confidently entrust ourselves to God's care when it comes to the future. Then, in paragraph 2116, it describes different forms of divination, and what they all have in common is that they are falsely supposed to reveal the future. So, we're not talking about actual ways of learning about the future, but false ones. So, if psychic functioning is real and you have a precognitive dream, for example, that would not count as divination because it really does reveal the future. There are also some issues with the English translation of this passage, but it's clear that what paragraph 2116 is giving us is a warning about divination or practices that are falsely supposed to reveal the future, including contact with demons. Finally, in paragraph 2117, it gives a warning against magic or sorcery. Unfortunately, the Catechism doesn't define how it's using the term magic, so we have to do our best to figure that out. And we talked about the topic in episode 79 on religion, magic, psychic phenomena, and science. And we saw that magic is best defined as rituals that have not been properly approved, usually shady ones of foreign origin. So we've had a warning against divination and a warning against magic. And then near the very end, it synthesizes these two warnings and says that spiritism often implies divination and magic, so the church warns the faithful against it. The structure of the passage thus appears to be giving a warning against spiritism because it often involves divination and magic, but it's not commenting one way or another on contacting the dead for other purposes, like asking for their prayers or helping them move on in the afterlife. One of the things the Catechism says is wrong with divination is that it conceals a desire for power over time, history, and, in the last analysis, other human beings, as well as a wish to conciliate hidden powers. But that's not the same thing as helping a soul move on in the afterlife. You aren't trying to conciliate a hidden power or gain power over time, history, or other humans. If you were helping a living person make spiritual progress, you wouldn't be accused of doing those things. So you aren't doing them just because the person you're helping make spiritual progress is deceased. I thus don't think that the warning from the Catechism engages what Father Castle is doing. What do you make of the Catechism's warning about Spiritism? 
I agree with it, and not just when it comes to contacting the spirits to do divination and magic. In fact, I'd warn people about spiritism on other grounds. Specifically, I'd warn them about fraud. If they're not careful, a lot of people are likely to get their money taken by mediums who are using magician's tricks like cold reading or hot reading to commit fraud, or just mediums who are imagining that they have contact with the departed, even though they don't have an evidential basis for this. That's not to say that there aren't evidential mediums. In fact, there are, as we discussed back in episode 137 on mediums. In that episode, we talked about some modern research that has been done not just under double-blind conditions, but quintuple-blind conditions, where nobody involved in the experiment has full knowledge of what's going on during the data collection phase, and the medium has absolutely no access to the person they're doing a reading for. They don't see them, they don't hear them, they don't even know who the person is. And yet, they can still produce information about this person's dead loved ones that goes considerably beyond random chance. Such evidential mediums, as they're called, are not producing information by fraud or imagination. But many mediums do not perform at that level. And so, as a general matter, people need to be warned that mediumship may not only involve divination and magic, they also need to be warned that it can involve fraud or just imagination. So they need to be on their guard against those too. But that leaves more room for contacting the dead in other ways than might be supposed. If there's more room for discussion on this subject than people often suppose, why is Deuteronomy so adamantly against necromancy? I suspect it's because of when Deuteronomy was written in salvation history. At the time, the Israelites were tempted by Canaanite practices and the worship of Canaanite gods. There are a huge number of passages in the Old Testament testifying to this temptation and condemning the people who gave in to it. Many Israelites were not faithful to Yahweh, and so Yahweh wanted to shut down any and all Canaanite practices and say, don't do those things. Focus on me and the prophets I will send you instead. If you want to get a prophecy or oracles, don't go to a Canaanite medium to call up the dead for you. Go to one of my prophets, and he'll tell you what I have to say. The problem was not so much talking with a departed spirit. It was turning to Canaanite practices that distracted people from Yahweh. But then, after this temptation with paganism was solved, the situation was different. And so God allowed Judah Maccabee to communicate with Onias and Jeremiah in a way that was morally acceptable. And God has continued to give apparitions of saints and souls in purgatory in the Christian age, because these are now framed in a religious context that did not involve worshiping other gods. Then would Deuteronomy's prohibition on necromancy still apply today? After I started thinking about this subject, I realized that this was a real question, and I'd never considered it before. I just assumed that it does apply today. But there are different commands in the Mosaic Law, of which Deuteronomy is a part, and they're classically divided into three categories. They are called the moral, judicial, and ceremonial precepts of the law, also known as the moral, civil, and ceremonial precepts. Moral precepts are things like don't commit murder and don't commit adultery. Civil or judicial precepts are things like designate cities of refuge that a person who has accidentally committed homicide can flee to and find shelter from the avenger of blood. 
And ceremonial precepts are things that deal with matters of religious ceremony, like circumcision, resting on Saturday, and not eating pork. Moral precepts, because they're written to human nature, are binding on all humans in all cultures. Nobody should be committing murder or adultery. However, judicial or civil precepts are not binding on all cultures. They contain underlying moral precepts that need to be honored, like find a way to protect someone who has accidentally committed homicide. But you don't have to do it the way ancient Israel did by establishing cities of refuge. I mean, restraining orders and modern police protection could be enough now that we have restraining orders and established police forces, and we no longer have individuals who are designated as avengers of blood in our families. Then there are the ceremonial precepts, and these were binding only on Israel. Only Israelites before the time of Christ had to be circumcised. Other people don't. Only the Israelites had to rest on Saturday. You know, Christians rest and worship on Sunday. And only the Israelites had to avoid pork. Other people don't. And as St. Paul tells us in Colossians 2, all of these ceremonies were things that were shadows pointing forward to Christ. But now that Christ has come, the ceremonial precepts aren't binding on anyone anymore, not even Israelites. So which category would you put the necromancy prohibition in? That's the thing. As I thought about this issue, it just looks like it ought to go in the ceremonial category. Speaking anthropologically, if you said, well, this culture has restrictions on the way you can get information from supernatural sources, how would we classify these restrictions? The obvious answer is they would go in a ritual ceremonial category. And there doesn't seem to be a principle of fundamental morality here. There's nothing wrong in principle with talking to another person. So why should the fact that the other person is dead make a moral difference? If it's possible to speak with the deceased, if they can hear us and respond, then mere communication with them would not seem to be immoral, as illustrated by Judah Maccabee's communication with Onias and Jeremiah, or the interactions of living Christians with saints and holy souls in purgatory. What about trying to make contact with a departed soul? Would that be intrinsically immoral? Well, in this life, there's nothing wrong in principle with calling out to another person and asking to speak with them. So why would it suddenly become immoral to do if the person were dead? I mean, assuming it's possible, why would it be wrong? And we already have evidence that initiating contact can be moral. According to common theological opinion, it is God himself who makes the saints and holy souls aware of our requests for their intercession. So if I wanted to ask my late wife, Renee, to pray for me, God would let her know about my prayer request according to this common opinion. But regardless of how Renee learns about my prayer request, it's me initiating contact with her, and there's nothing wrong with that. So I can initiate contact. And if I can ask Renee to pray for me, why couldn't I simply make a different request? I mean, for example, why couldn't I say, you know, back when I was actively grieving for her, honey, I really miss you. If it's God's will, could you send me a message, maybe a dream, and let me know that you're okay and that you still love me? It would really help me to hear that. 
and it would be entirely God's will as to whether he'll let me have such a dream, but I can't see anything wrong in making the request. It thus looks like it's legitimate both for me to initiate contact and to ask for things other than mere intercession, like having a message, knowing that my wife is okay in the afterlife. In fact, in St. Thomas Aquinas's Quadlibital Questions, he considers an issue very similar to this. He considered whether it was moral to ask a dying person to reveal their fate after death. And he said, It is not a sin to seek to fulfill a natural desire unless it is done with some additional disorder. Now, human beings naturally desire knowledge. Hence, it is not a sin to seek to know things, except perhaps incidentally due to some additional disorder. This would be the case, for example, if people's study and pursuit of knowledge prevented them from fulfilling their other obligations. A preacher, for instance, might be prevented from his duty to preach by studying geometry instead. It would also be the case if people sought to know things out of pride or presumptuous confidence in their own abilities. And it would be the case given any other disorder of this kind as well. But there does not seem to be any disorder involved in seeking and asking to know a dying person's state after death, subject, of course, to divine judgment. Hence, there does not seem to be any reason we ought to call this a sin, unless one were asking because one doubted the faith about the future state, as if testing God thereby. So Aquinas says that there's not a problem in principle with asking a dying person to do something after death to let you know that they're okay or that they're in purgatory and need prayers, or whatever. The only difference here is the fact that Aquinas speaks of asking a person who is still alive to do this after death. So, why would it make a difference if I asked my late wife to send me a sign if she's okay, you know, subject to God's will? I'm asking for exactly the same information, and I already know that I can initiate contact with her as when I send her a prayer request. So why can't I just ask her, honey, could you pray that if it's God's will, I'll receive a sign telling me that you're okay? Then I would even be phrasing the request as a prayer request. I'm asking her to intercede with God to send me a sign. I just don't see any fundamental immorality that is introduced by initiating contact and making a request for a response of some kind. Similarly, I could pray to an established saint and ask if it's God's will to have an apparition. For example, suppose that I'm experiencing a vocational decision that I'm discerning. I might say, you know, Blessed Virgin Mary, it would really strengthen my faith and help me if you appeared to me and gave me guidance about this crucial decision I have to make. If it's God's will, could you appear and let me know? Of course, it would be up to God whether this would happen and whether it would be the right thing for me to receive an apparition right now, but there isn't anything immoral about making the request. And what I'm doing is initiating contact and asking for communication, for guidance about what I should do with respect to a possible vocation. So it's not looking like initiating contact and asking for communication is immoral as long as it's framed in a Christian context and subject to God's will. But if you reach out to a spirit and ask for communication, how do you know what you're going to get? Isn't there a danger that a different spirit, a deceptive spirit, maybe even a demon might respond? 
Absolutely, but this problem isn't new. The church faced this issue in the first century, and it had a solution to the problem. St. Paul told the Corinthians, You know that when you were heathen, you were led astray to mute idols, however you may have been moved. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. So Paul warns them not to believe every spirit, and he gives them a test that you can use to distinguish between spirits. If the spirit says, Jesus be cursed, or literally Jesus anathema in Greek, well, that's definitely not the Holy Spirit. But if the spirit says, Jesus is Lord, that's a sign it may be the Holy Spirit, or at least an angel or other spirit that's working for the Holy Spirit. Paul also indicates that humans have a role in making or breaking contact with spirits. Discussing the role of prophets in worship services, he says, Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting by, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So, prophets can apparently initiate prophetic discourse in worship service. They can make contact with heavenly spirits, whether they're contacting the Holy Spirit or an angel or whatever. But the other prophets should weigh what one of their number is saying, again, indicating the theme of testing what a spirit is saying. And the prophets can pause or stop communication because Paul says that if one prophet is speaking, and another receives a revelation, the first should be quiet, because the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, and God wants things done in an orderly, peaceful way, not a confusing one. St. John is even more direct about testing the spirits. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are of God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit which confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit which does not confess Jesus is not of God. So John indicates that we are to test the spirits, and he gives us he also gives us a criterion for testing, noting that if a spirit confesses the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that's a positive sign. But if it denies the incarnation of Christ, it's a deceiving spirit. What neither Paul nor John does is say, talking to spirits is too dangerous. The odds of talking to a deceiving spirit is too high, so never talk to spirits. Instead, they presuppose that contact with spirits is okay, but you need to test them because some are deceptive. The solution that Paul and John recommend thus is not avoidance of contact with spirits, but testing to see whether a given spirit is telling the truth or not. Could it be argued that these principles apply to non-human spirits like angels, that we should test angelic spirits, but that we shouldn't have any contact with human ones? Well, it's certainly the case that in the Bible, most of the legitimate contact with spirits was with ones that weren't human. It was usually either the Holy Spirit or angelic spirits that spoke to or through one of the prophets. That may be partly because Jesus had not yet opened the gates of heaven, so there weren't a lot of humans up there yet. 
But even in the Old Testament, we see Onias and Jeremiah communicating with Judah Maccabee. Today, now that there are so many more human beings in heaven or on the road to heaven in purgatory, it's natural for us to have more communication with human spirits. We also have more public revelation than at the time of the Maccabees, and we have additional insights into, communi- into the communion of saints due to doctrinal development, including greater knowledge of how we can help souls in the afterlife and how they can help us. So taking all that into account, it could be natural to think that the kind of communication Judah Maccabee had with Onias and Jeremiah might be more common today in the Christian age. But fundamentally, there doesn't seem to be a difference between talking to an angel or talking to a human spirit. If you can talk to one, why can't you talk to the other? And as with any other spirit, we need to test what they say and see if they're being truthful or not. And if One of the men uh, that Judah saw in his dream said to him, you know, you should worship other gods. He would would have needed to apply the test the spirits principle right quick. But that's a question of testing, not absolute avoidance. Could people make a mistake in applying the tests? Could they think that a deceptive spirit was actually telling the truth? (laughs) Absolutely, because people make mistakes. But that was just as true of the first Christians as it is of people today, and the inspired authors of the New Testament did not view the danger of making a mistake as so high that all contact with spirits must be avoided. They expected their readers to still have contact with spirits, and they gave them useful tests for how to spot the deceivers. But they didn't say, The danger of making a mistake is too high here, guys, so avoid all contact. What happens if you conclude that you are talking to a deceptive spirit? What do you do then? Well, in ordinary circumstances, I think you shut down communication and stop relying on anything it said. Although there can be situations in which continued communication is warranted, such as in an exorcism case where a demon is torturing a person and you need to get it out. In those cases, I think the advice given in the 1964 rite of exorcism applies. 14. The exorcist must not digress into senseless prattle, nor ask superfluous questions, or such as are prompted by curiosity, particularly if they pertain to future and hidden matters, all of which have nothing to do with his office. Instead, he will bid the unclean spirit keep silence and answer only when asked. Neither ought he to give any credence to the devil if the latter maintains that he is the spirit of some saint or of a deceased party or even claims to be a good angel. 15. But necessary questions are, for example, the number and name of the spirits inhabiting the patient, the time when they entered into him, the cause thereof, and the like. As for all jesting, laughing, and nonsense on the part of the evil spirit, the exorcist should prevent it or contemn it and he will exhort the bystanders, whose numbers must be very limited, to pay no attention to such goings-on. Neither are they to put any question to the subject. Rather, they should intercede for him to God in all humility and urgency. So stay focused on the task of getting rid of the demon, or demons. Don't ask unnecessary questions, and don't trust what the demons say, because they're lying liars who lie. In fact, I've seen how exorcists can get into problematic situations when they rely on amazing things that the subject of an exorcism says, 
we'll talk about at least one such case in a future episode. And I know of one current popular exorcist on YouTube who I won't name, who I've seen give a talk in which he mentioned an exorcism he performed, and he cited a demon as a source for an insight about the Virgin Mary. My jaw figuratively dropped when I heard him cite a demon as a source of spiritual insight. Why trust anything a demon says? He's working for the father of lies. If you think you have a valid insight into the Virgin Mary, argue it separately on the merits, but don't present what you hear from a demon as if they are legitimate sources of information of spiritual insights to a popular audience. In my view, this exorcist was not being cautious enough with what demons were telling him. Earlier, we read the Catechism's discussion of Spiritism, but has the Church issued any other statements on the subject? It has. Uh, the Catechism is the most recent and authoritative statement, but there have been some previous ones. One of the most interesting was issued on March 30th, 1898 by what was then known as the Holy Office, later the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, and today known as the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith. The document took the form of what's known as a dubium, which is essentially a question. In dubia, someone, typically a bishop, will send a question to Rome, and then the Holy Office, Congregation, or Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith will give a short answer. Most often, the answer is simply either the word affirmative or negative, meaning that they tend to answer questions either yes or no. If they give a longer answer than that, it's significant. So here's the original dubium from 1898. It's recorded in the 1933 book, The Church and Spiritualism, by the Catholic parapsychologist Father Herbert Thurston. Question. Titius, while excluding from his purpose any compact with the spirit of evil, is accustomed to evoke the souls of the dead. His method is this. Being alone in his room without any kind of external ceremony, he prays to the leader of the heavenly hosts to grant him the opportunity of conversing with the spirit of some definite person. He waits for a little time, and then he feels his hand moved, and by this he learns the presence of the spirit. Then he explains what he wants to know, and his hand writes the answers to the questions proposed. All these answers are in accord with the faith and with the church's teaching regarding a future life. For the most part, such replies relate to the state of the soul of some dead person, the need that it has of prayers, and complaints of the negligence of its relatives in making prayers. In the circumstances explained, it is asked whether this practice of Titius is permissible. What's interesting about this is that what the bishop reports Titius doing is a procedure known as automatic writing. Now, the basic idea is you let a spirit move your hand. So your hand moves and writes automatically without you deliberately moving it. That's why it's called automatic writing. It was widely used by mediums in the 19th century, and it's still used today. It was one of several ways of trying to obtain text messages from spirits, you know, messages in the form of text. Other ways included putting a pencil in a little plank known as a planchette and pushing the planchette to write messages. And then there were spirit boards that had letters and numbers printed on them, and the spirits would indicate which letters were needed to spell out the message they wanted to send. 
Eventually, the planchette and the spirit board were combined to give us the modern Ouija board. So what Titius was doing was in the same general category as Ouija boards. It's just a different way of getting text messages from spirits. And it will be interesting to see what the Holy Office had to say about Titius doing automatic writing. Now, in his case, Titius was really trying to stay in line with church teaching. He doesn't use any special ceremonies. He prays to God, asking that if it's God's will, he be allowed to communicate with the spirit of a particular person. He waits and sees if his hand moves, signaling that it is God's will. Then he asks questions and lets his hand write the responses. He also tests the answers, and they don't contain anything that contradicts church teaching, and for the most part, they deal with the state of the deceased person's soul, like whether they're in purgatory and need prayer. And the bishop wants to know if what Titius is doing is okay. So, well, how did the Holy Office respond? I invite the listener to make a prediction now, before we reveal the answer. Did the Holy Office reply affirmative? meaning that what Titius is doing is okay? Did it reply negative, indicating that what Titius is doing is wrong? Or did it say something else? Make your prediction now, because here comes the answer, as described by Father Thurston. To this, the answer was returned. Uti exponitur non licere. In the circumstances explained, it is not permissible and the decision was ratified by His Holiness Pope Leo XIII. So the Holy Office didn't say either that Titius's use of automatic writing was always permissible or that it was always impermissible. Instead, it said that in the circumstances explained, it is not permissible, meaning that it could be permissible in different circumstances. The Holy Office, because of the brevity of its replies, doesn't explain what those other circumstances might be, but it doesn't give a flat no to automatic writing. It has a more qualified answer that suggests there could be circumstances in which automatic writing would be acceptable. So I think this is a very interesting response, and it means that we need to be careful in characterizing the Catholic position as involving a flat no to this kind of thing. That isn't the kind of position the Holy Office is taking in this papally approved dubium way back in 1898. And it's not the kind of position that the Church took more recently in the Catechism. It's impressive to have an early, nuanced statement from the Holy Office that doesn't reject all forms of automatic writing. Do we have other early indications of a more nuanced position on communication with the departed? We do. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, there was a lot of scientific research being done on mediums and seances, such as by the esteemed scientists in the British and American Societies for Psychical Research. And this seems to have been accepted in Catholic circles. The Church was warning lay people against attending seances, but it didn't seem to have a problem with scientists doing research on them. For example, the 1912 Catholic Encyclopedia's article on Spiritism that reviewed different decrees of the Holy Office, including the one we just quoted, said this. In all these documents, the distinction is clearly drawn between legitimate scientific investigation and superstitious abuses. What the Church condemns in Spiritism is superstition with its evil consequences 
for Religion and Morality. So this article holds that what the church rejects in spiritism is the superstitious abuses it contains, but it doesn't object to legitimate scientific research separate from superstition. In The Church and Spiritualism, Father Thurston offers three principles taken from the Dominican priest Father Thomas Mainage, which summarize the church's position, at least at the time, as follows. 1. The Church has not pronounced upon the essential nature of spiritualistic phenomena. 2. The Church forbids the general body of the faithful to take any part in spiritualistic practices. 3. In the manifestations which occur, the Church suspects that diabolic agencies may, per accidents, intervene. So, the Church suspects that demons may be involved in some cases, but it hasn't determined the essential nature of spiritistic phenomena, and it forbids the general body of the faithful from taking part in spiritualistic practices, but that wouldn't rule out, for example, qualified individuals from doing scientific research on them. Father Thurston goes on to comment, It were much to be desired that Catholic writers on the subject would emphasize these points which are matters of certainty, and would, on the other hand, make it clear that the further considerations so often urged in anti-spiritualistic literature, carry no more weight than attaches to the private opinion of those who have studied the movement with more or less of attention. So he warns that beyond the three principles he regards as certain, there is room for differences of opinion among Catholics, and the more rigorous opinions found in anti-spiritualistic literature do not carry more weight than those who have studied the spiritualist movement. In any event, we see some flexibility when Father Thurston published his book in 1933, before the even more modest warning, which doesn't even involve a strict prohibition, that the Catechism contained in 1992. Jimmy, you do paranormal research. Are you someone that would qualify for the research exception? I think that argument could be made. Um, in the first place, I seek to think very carefully and critically about every hypothesis and to rigorously test arguments, including my own. Longtime listeners will no doubt remember episodes where I presented arguments that had occurred to me that were unique to me, you know, so they were things I could claim credit for. But despite this personal connection, I didn't spare them and I proceeded to knock them down. I remember receiving feedback from one listener who commented to the effect that, this is what I love about this show. Here's my argument. Now here's five reasons I'm wrong. I also have special training in parapsychology. I'm certified as a paranormal field investigator by the Office of Paranormal Investigations, and I've qualified for a certificate titled Investigating the Paranormal, a Scientific Perspective, from the Rhine Education Center. This took a considerable amount of study. It took around a year and a half to complete, and it required taking and successfully passing multiple different courses. I passed most of these courses with maximum credit, meaning A-plus status. So I have received training in scientifically investigating the paranormal, and I did well in my training. I thus think one could argue that I would fall under the research exception that was already in place when Father Thurston wrote, however, I haven't at least yet done any personal research on mediumistic experiences, though I have read and studied a lot about how such research is done, including reading multiple scholarly books and journal articles on the subject. Based on your studies, have you formed any conclusions about interacting with possible spirits in field investigations? 
One conclusion that I reached early on was that it would be legitimate to interact with spirits when one is already manifesting to a person or in a location. Those situations are essentially the same as what happened to Judah Maccabee. He didn't seek contact with Onias and Jeremiah. They appeared to him in a dream. So if a spirit is apparently manifesting, let's say, in a particular house or through a dream, then the spirit has already made contact and it's legitimate to respond, including applying the test the spirits principle to find out, among other things, whether it's a spirit at all, because it could be a purely natural phenomenon. And if it is a spirit, determining, you know, whose it is, what kind it is. So if I were in a field investigation situation, let's say someone is reporting an apparition of a ghost in their house, I wouldn't have a problem addressing the ghost and seeing if it responds and evaluating what it says. When it comes to initiating contact with spirits that haven't manifested, the matter isn't on as firm a ground. On the one hand, it's hard to find good arguments against initiating contact as long as you're using critical thinking. The New Testament attitude isn't avoiding contact, but testing the spirits. And there are clear examples of initiating contact, like with the New Testament prophets initiating contact with their prophetic spirits, or us today asking the saints for their intercession, or simply asking for a sign that your deceased loved one is okay. On the other hand, there are clear cautions, at least for most people, against initiating contact, presumably because most people aren't in as good a position to critically evaluate the results of contact or to critically test the spirits. Let's go back to consider what Father Castle has been doing in his ministry to stuck souls. What do you make of it in light of what we've discussed? From the reason perspective, as a paranormal investigator, I'd love to have the details needed to check out what he reports and see if we can verify the existence of the people he reports serving. That would help us show that this isn't just his imagination, his subconscious giving him vivid dreams. And I think it's likely that someone will do this kind of research in the future, given the data set that Father Castle has been building for investigation. From the faith perspective, I can't condemn what he's doing. He's certainly not initiating contact with spirits on his own. He waits until a spirit manifests to him in a dream, and then he responds and tries to help that spirit move towards God. He subjects everything to God's will. He says, he says prayers before and after every session to ask for God's protection and guidance. The motive isn't to gain information from souls, but to help them. And he doesn't report the souls that he helps saying things that contradict the Catholic faith. When it comes to him and his prayer partners lending their voices to the souls, this is something that the Church hasn't commented on directly, but it goes in the same category as Titius lending his hand to a soul for automatic writing, and the Holy Office's reply indicated it was open to that being permissible in some circumstances. So, while a future magisterial decision could go the other way, the idea of lending your voice to God or a saint or a soul in purgatory would seem to be permitted in at least some circumstances. After all, the biblical prophets lent their voices to God and angels, so I can't rule out this practice just because certain mediums do something similar. The Holy Office's 1898 decision seemed to suggest that lending the ability to communicate to a soul could be legitimate in some circumstances, and what Father Castle is doing may well be among those circumstances. 
Certainly, his religious superiors in the Dominican order have not condemned what he's doing, and they definitely know about it because he's told them. In light of all this, and the Catechism's very cautious statement regarding contacting the souls of the departed, I don't have a basis to condemn what Father Castle is doing. It does not look to me like it contradicts church teaching. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on talking to the departed? I think that the subject of speaking with the departed is more complex than many people realize. The Old Testament contains strong prohibitions on necromancy, but these look like ceremonial precepts to direct the Israelites away from Canaanite practices, and the Old Testament itself contains later perfectly legitimate examples of contact with the dead, like Judah Maccabees' contact with Onias and Jeremiah. The New Testament also doesn't forbid contact with spirits. Instead, it advocates a test-the-spirits procedure. When it comes to church teaching, the church allows people to make requests of departed spirits, including requests for their prayers and seemingly even requests for them to send, up, send us messages, like, what is God's will for my life, or whether they're okay in the afterlife. Furthermore, the church acknowledges that it is legitimate to receive messages from spirits, as in the case of apparitions of saints and requests by souls in purgatory for help. It doesn't prohibit scientific research on contact with spirits, and the most recent, most authoritative church statement is phrased in the form of a reasonable warning as opposed to an absolute prohibition on contact with spirits. When it comes to what Father Castle is doing, it does not appear to be condemned by the church. He's doing it with the consent of his superiors, and he seems to employ the principles we've discussed. For a start, I mean, he isn't initiating contact with spirits. He's waiting until they manifest to him in dreams. He isn't pumping them for information about the future or doing magic. Uh, he's only seeking to help them move on in their journeys to God. So I agree with the theologian they consulted. It looks like this is an acceptable practice that is not contrary to church teaching. Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listener and viewer? We'll have links to uh, Father Nathan Castle's books, Afterlife Interrupted, Volume 1, and After Afterlife Interrupted, Volume 2. Also, St. Thomas Aquinas's book, Quadlibital Questions. Father Herbert Thurston's book, The Church and Spiritualism. Michael Heiser's ebook, The Old Testament Response to Pagan Divination. The Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith document, Juvenesket Ecclesia. And the 1912 Catholic Encyclopedia's article on Spiritism. Excellent. So that's it from us this time. What are your theories about what we've covered regarding Father Castle and speaking with the departed? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending us an email to feedback at mysterious.fm, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, visiting the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord, or calling our mysterious feedback line, 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And I want to say a special word of thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for the video and animation work they did on this episode. You can hire them for your own video and animation needs, and you can check out their work by going to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken, where I have the video version of Mysterious World, and you can see how much the video work actually adds. If you're one of our audio listeners, um, I think you'll enjoy the video version even more. 
So go to youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. While you're there, hit the like button on the video because that tells the YouTube algorithm that you liked it and so it should show it to other people. Also, we're trying to grow the channel. So I'd really appreciate it if you subscribe and hit the bell notification so that you always get notified whenever I have a video, whether it's Mysterious World or one of the other videos I put out. Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Well, next week is the fifth anniversary of Mysterious World. We've been doing it for five years now. And so to celebrate that, uh, we put out a call a while back to the listeners to send us their mysterious experiences. And boy, did they ever. We didn't mention it very often. I think we mentioned it a grand total of twice. And we got a ton of mysterious experiences. And eventually we'll share them all with people, but to keep the episode at reasonable length, next week we'll be sharing with you a sample of what you and your fellow Mysterious World listeners have been experiencing. Cool. Folks, be sure to share the podcast with your friends and write a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from to help us grow our community and reach more listeners. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at mysterious.fm slash 270. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fairvento Law PLLC, now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides of Michigan convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com. F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O law.com. And by Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at delivercontacts.com. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, The Secrets of Middle-Earth. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash Middle-Earth.